Morning, glory, and evening, Grace America. This is California. I'm Hugh Hewitt. And this is a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, originally taped for broadcast on December 31st, 2001, and January 1st, 2002. We replay it whenever you need a high-octane edition of knowledge. It is my walk through Western civilization in six parts. My guide and yours, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College in Michigan. He has his Ph.D. from Claremont Graduate School in Modern History and Political Theory. He was a research scholar at Oxford University working there with the world's greatest living historian, Martin Gilbert, or Sir Martin Gilbert to you. Part one of this program we could call sort of the Jews. Part two, the Greeks. And part three is the Romans, really. But, Dr. Arm, we really gave short shrift to Aristotle in part two, didn't we? We did. So I want to begin with a little more Aristotelian tutoring here. Um, he has the means as the guide to the ethics, uh, to the moral virtues. You were there when we left off because of time constraints. But he also yes. wrote a book about politics. He did. And Aristotle's Politics, um, there's a, it's a wonderful book to read as as an introduction to the study of politics. It, it doesn't help you understand American politics perfectly, but it's a prelude to that. Uh, I, I would say American politics or free politics or liberal politics perfectly, but it's a prelude to that. Uh, in, in Aristotle, man is a naturally political animal. Uh, politics grows up in man in the same way that, that uh, um, herding grows up in people. It's, it's his way. The specific thing that makes a man a human a human is his ability to talk, logos. Uh, Jesus will talk about later in the book of John is identified as logos. Logos is the Greek word both for speech and for reason, or as we say in the Christian era, the word. And, and it is the possession of this reason that makes man more gregarious than any other kind of animal. Horses are gregarious, but they don't talk to each other. They don't deliberate about the highest things. Politics is authoritatively about these highest things. Implicit in politics is an account of what is right. And the regimes, the political regimes, differ in their accounts. Uh, Aristotle wrote, apart from the ethics and the politics, many works, some of them biological, a beautiful thing called the anima, or, or in the Greek, that's a, actually the Latin title, but on the Greek, perisuke, which means on the soul. Uh, he wrote the physics and the metaphysics. He wrote the parts of animals, and, and uh, he wrote uh, several constitutions of cities, most of which have been destroyed. But each one of them, uh, the ones of Athens, survives. But they are, uh, both from the ones that we have and from the, the accounts that exist, the ones that, that we've lost, um, they have in common that they are investigations into the nature of the regimes, weighing them up against each other to see what is implicit in their claims of each other. Politics depends upon that. Aristotle gives a kind of a systematic account of that, as well as of how politics grows up, of what its rightful purposes are, of the different kinds of the regimes, and how you can, you can weigh one against another and see which ones are just. Uh, he gives a, uh, a schema in the politics uh, between the kinds of regimes. Regimes may be ruled by one, by many, or by few. Um, if they're ruled by one and they're just, they're called monarchy. And if they're ruled by one and they're unjust, they're called tyranny. Similarly, for the few, they're called aristocracy, which means Ariston. Uh, Plato was the son of Ariston. Arist Ariston means best. 
Plato was very well born, mm. unlike Aristotle and Socrates, as far as we know. Um, uh, aristocracy is the rule of the best. Oligarchy is the rule of the few. Uh, and then, and then, democracy. The word for bad rule and good rule in democracy is the same. Uh, in Aristotle's world, democracy cannot be a very good form of government, but it might not be a very terrible one either. Huh. And and the word demos, which means the tens, that that itself is revelatory of of the origins of Greek politics, because in the ancient city in its first form, the gods were particular to each city, and they were the gods of the leading families. And of course, uh, as it happens, sometimes families have more than one son. And the younger sons will then go on and have children, and ultimately, the sons of the younger sons, it's like Churchill was the eldest son of the second son of a Duke of England. So Churchill was a commoner. If his dad had been born a few months earlier, he would have been a duke, the highest kind of peer. So the few families who are the oldest and the highest families, they come necessarily to be outnumbered by the, by the lower families. And in military matters, the lower families were organized in ranks of ten, deems, and the demos came to be known as the many. And democracy is the rule of the many. And in Aristotle, that's a flawed form of rule. Necessarily flawed, maybe not, however, simply unjust. And, and uh, if you read the politics, you get an introduction to how politics works, and you get account, an account of its naturalness, the fact that people have always been organized in political societies, and it is, their, it is because of the way of them, because of their nature, that they are so organized. Over the centuries, the study of politics moved in its center of gravity from Greece to, of course, the center of gravity in Rome, and that's the transition we're going to make now. I don't want to jump immediately to Cicero because that would short the Roman Republic, which crushes, crushes Greece and, and spreads across the known world, all under, would you call it an aristocracy? Well, the, Rome is, um, there are various things to know about the Romans. They start in those hills up there in the, in the middle of Italy, over, over toward the western side, and they become gradually a very fierce people. Um, uh, Virgil writes of them that they are the descendants of the escaped Trojans. Uh, they're various, and there's the myth of Romulus and Remus, uh, two boys, two brothers suckled by a wolf. Uh, and, of course, Romulus is the namesake of Rome. And they're an ancient people who became very tough in the wars among the hills in central Italy with their neighbors. And they, they like the Greek polis, the Greek city-state, they formed an element of citizenship, which meant a wider form of rule, which also gave rise to strength. Uh, you know, if you have, uh, uh, there's this wonderful author, which I urge you all to read, called Victor Davis Hanson. He's famous now, and he's all over the place. He's been on this program, yes. Yeah, The Soul of Battle, and most recently, Carnage Cultural and Culture, Carnage. fabulous books. And, and he writes that uh, if you want people who are really good at killing other people, really fierce at making war, then what you need to do is get yourself a bunch of people who are free, who are equal citizens. Because when they get united, they're just impossible to deal with. And Athens and Sparta are examples of this in different ways. And Rome is an example of this. By the way, 
if the Taliban had read Professor Hansen's books, perhaps they would have mended their ways before their destruction, because they actually made the terrible mistake of taking us lightly, and Osama bin Laden was a great uh, rhetorician on the subject of how corrupt and, and uh, weak and uncertain we are. He had only met Bill Clinton. Um, but he had not read Professor Hansen, and it's uh, people more like Hansen writes about who are over there right now, yes. for him in his cave. Anyway, yeah. um, the the uh, the Romans were such a people, and they conquered Italy, and they had a long series of wars with Carthage. They had disastrous losses in Italy with Carthage, and it was their way, after they had them, the most famous of the disastrous losses at the Battle of Cannae, they're, 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 it was their way to raise another army immediately, to attack them again, and indeed to send expeditionary forces across to Africa to attack them in their homeland. Ultimately, they destroyed Carthage and began the conquest of the world. They conquered the Greeks, where the Persians had not been able. Uh, the Greeks by this time had already been conquered and united under Macedon, just north of Greece. And they began to conquer the Mediterranean world, and then up into Gaul to the German border, and then England and some of Scotland and Wales. And uh, the Romans, they kept for much of this period of time, while they were conquering, the republican form, which in the classic world means a form of mixed rule in which the well-born and the many and the one all have some share in the, in the, in the rule. The Senate would, would appoint a consul or two, uh, executive officers in the in the in the much of this period would be appointed out of the um, the uh, Senate. When we come back, we're going to talk about probably Rome's greatest theoretician, Cicero, and how he viewed the Roman Republic even on the eve of its destruction as a great legacy that we can continue to mind. Don't go anywhere. It's Hugh Hewitt on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, Part Three. Our guest and guide, Dr. Larry Arn. President of Hillsdale College in Michigan will continue as we move to Cicero on this New Year's special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on a special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show, part three of six parts, originally broadcast New Year's Eve and New Year's Day of 2001-2002. Dr. Larry Arn, professor, uh, president, actually, of Hillsdale College, is our guest. Uh, Dr. Arn and I are now up to Rome. We're to Cicero. And uh, Larry, the the, the books by Colleen McCullough, so popular in the United States, the First Man in Rome series, which begin with Gaius Marius and take us through the demise of Caesar, have really done bad things to Cicero's reputation. He comes across as a feeble, weak uh, coward, really, and, and not really someone to follow. Very different from sort of Latin students everywhere learning Cicero's orations. What do we need to know about Cicero? Well, uh, I have the honor not to have read those books, and uh, so I, I won't attempt to refute them. But Cicero was a statesman, a landowner, a, um, a uh, orator, a genius, a philosopher. He wrote several books that are among the most important books written in the Western world, the Republic. I am particularly fond of his book on friendship. I think that's a fabulous conversation among friends, and it's important, and the importance of friendship and the ground and nature of friendship. Like many things that are very fine in the classical world, it, it is the source, I believe, of much that C.S. Lewis writes on the subject of friendship and love. Uh, and 
there's nothing like reading Cicero. Uh, I've read a fair amount of Cicero, much of it in recent years. Uh, I have a good friend who's an expert on it, Charles Kessler at Claremont, who's a really great young man himself, and and uh, and he's a wonderful source of information about Cicero, and he has written very nicely about the connection between the writings of Cicero and the American idea of the natural law. Uh, and if he doesn't publish that one of these days, I'm going to skin him. Uh, it's in his doctoral thesis. What, what, what happens in Cicero's writings is that the idea of the natural law becomes systematic. It becomes a theme for the first time. Um, in Greek, the word for, uh, for uh, nature is phusis, and the word for uh, law is nomos. And in, the, in, in Aristotle and Plato, those two things occur most commonly as an opposition. I wish to rise above nomos, or convention, to phusis, or nature. Uh, nomos is what men do. Laws are what men make. But they make mistakes, and so we're looking for a standard outside the makings of men to, which com to compare law. This idea becomes uh, changed some in Cicero. It's interesting that it becomes changed as Rome is completing the conquest of the world, because that's where Cicero comes in Roman history. It's and just before it collapses, a republic as well. That's right. A defender of the idea of the republic against empire and Caesarism, which, of course, is the story of most of Roman history, at least great Roman history. Um, in Cicero, there is a law in nature, and a certain kind of mind can give an account of it, but any kind of rational mind has contact with it. Um, and, and he argues in his Republic for this quite systematically. Um, he writes in that book, I find that it has been the opinion of the wisest man, men that law is not a product of human thought, nor is it any enactment of peoples, but something eternal which rules the whole universe by its wisdom. Reason has always existed, derived from the nature of the universe, urging men to right conduct and diverting them from wrongdoing. Now, it's interesting, he says, the opinions of the wisest men, because in other writings, Cicero holds up uh, Socrates as such a wise man. But you won't find that Socrates making the argument that law is, what, is not what men make. Uh, law is what men make, and nature is what philosophers examine to question law. So in Cicero, he's looking for a law that reaches beyond the making of men. And he finds that the voice of that law is in us somewhere, and that great men, certain men, can give an account of it. Let me, let me depart for a second. For people who are wondering, why do we care about this? This is the beginning of the natural law tradition among its practitioners today. Uh, your friend, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Exactly. That, that idea, that's right. And, and you know, the, the notion of the, of the natural law is, first of all, named in the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's a, uh, I will repeat myself that I've been a, a great skeptic about whether there's any use in this exercise that we're doing here right now at all, all failings of use having to do with my understanding, which is limited. But I will say this. If you take anything away from this, take this conception of the natural law away, because it is a national embarrassment that during the confirmation hearings of uh, Justice Thomas, Judge Thomas then, before they made that uh, frightful scandal about Anita Hill, 
they tried to make a scandal about his use of the term natural law in some of his writings and speeches before he was nominated to the Supreme Court. And there are two senators, one on each aisle, one on each side of the aisle, who ask him along the way, where did you get this odd idea? <laughs> and, you know, there's, I remember hearing it one time while the hearings were going on, and there was old Peter Jennings, you know, breaking in to comment on the hearings after this. And he didn't, he never heard of it before. See, they hadn't listened to this program. It hadn't been taped yet. Yeah, and of course, Peter Jennings is the sort who's immune, impervious to learning about important things anyway, but, <laughs> <laughs> but not most people. And anyway, that, the idea that, that uh, you know, I, I said earlier, I mean, Lord knows if ever I've, committed an extravagance it's suggesting that there's some suggestion of the natural law as early as homer which of course explicitly there certainly is not but there is a proof of it which which is that we do all even in our conflicts uh, with one another appeal to the same standard and that means that there is an agreement among us even as we fight about what is right and what is wrong and the natural law. This is, by the way, you've re- referred to C.S. Lewis many times. This is the beginning of mere Christianity. And also the abolition of man. I mean, it's one of the burdens of that book, too. That It's not the beginning of that book, but it's one of the burdens of that book. And, you know, look, look at it this way. On his tape, Osama bin Laden, I mean, to, you know, that guy's, if there's anybody who needs killing, it's that guy. And what does he say on the tape? Among other things, he makes the point that these people that he has killed are not innocent. So why is that important? It's important because he agrees that you ought not to kill the innocent. He appeals to natural law. He does. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's... So that no matter how many people in the United States Senate may not recognize it, the the natural law tradition, first explicated systematically by Cicero, is nevertheless at work in the world at all times that we discuss politics. So I believe. When we come back, we are going to make the bridge to Christianity because we're going to talk in the shortest segment of the hour about Jesus. Uh, So we bring the divine in to a discussion of natural law with our guide to Western civilization, and Jesus is part of Western civilization. Don't go anywhere. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is our guide, and I am your host. This is a special edition Over six parts, we're midway through part three of this The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt, Voice of Reason in the West, on our special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Six parts, six different hours devoted to sort of a glancing look at Western civilization. This segment of part three with our guest, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, deals with someone who may have shocked some of you to find on a list of great uh, thinkers in Western civilization, Jesus, because... uh, uh, you are treating with historical figures as well as divine figures here, Dr. Arn. Why did you include Jesus on this list? Uh, well, there's the fact that you made me, and also because um, who could one name who's had a greater impact on history than Jesus? Um, it, uh, <laughs> it, uh, um, Jesus remade the world, and uh, it, it, uh, you, you, don't, you don't have to recur to the divine account of how he did that, although I do, to understand that. Um, Jesus is, is the, the central figure in a different kind of religion. Um, Jesus is a carpenter's son, uh, born in Palestine um, 2,000 years ago. It's his birthday. 
right around now. Um, Jesus, differing from Abraham and from Moses and from Mohammed, who are prophets, is to be, it says that he is the incarnate Son of God. Adding to that, there is this curiosity in his career that is a very, very remarkable thing, that what everyone expects of him is that he's going to form an army. And he doesn't. And he won't. And he's going to form a government. And he doesn't. And he won't. His is a religion that will reach across boundaries of politics, which is a very interesting thing when it happens, because up until Jesus, there had always been this wedding between the political authority and the divine authority. The Spartans and the Jews, the Hebrews, got their laws from God, revealed through a prophet. And the law was divine. And disobedience to it was not just a breaking of the law, it was also a sacrilege. And the priest was a powerful political authority. But now, apparently, there is to be the ability to worship the same God in more than one country, under one more than one dispensation of the law. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. That is a demotion of Caesar, because Caesar would not agree with that. Yep. And so there is a rebellion against unlimited government, implicit in that statement. Of course, eventually, and the reason people don't understand very well what you just said, is that the Roman Empire fuses Christian thinking onto it and becomes an agent of Christianity, though I believe... Well, would you agree with the statement, Christ did not intend that? I, I, I do. I, I, this change is so dramatic, so amazing. Remember, I, I said that thing about if you disobey a cop giving you a speeding ticket, especially if you assault him, the whole power of the state could be upon you here in America today. Yes. The law is an awesome power. But now, it's not to touch how you worship. That's a very important thing, to be exempted from legal authority. Limited government is born in that idea. But huge changes, both in thought and in politics, which, in my opinion, have taken centuries to work out, follow upon this revolution that is implicit in Jesus. The way for Jesus is prepared some by the Roman Empire, of course, because the Roman Empire confronts this problem itself, practically, of what will we do if we're going to govern a whole bunch of different countries, and they've all got different gods, and now we're, you know, and they're all going to have an openness for citizenship, for example. You know, the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen and a Jew, not born in Rome. So if you're going to have that, how are you going to work that? And their idea at the beginning was the Pantheon. Just put their gods in there, too. And then, you know, you can pick which ones you like. But there's something else outside God that constitutes loyalty to Rome. So, so in a certain way, there's some preparation for this in the history of the Roman Empire. Nonetheless, it's still revolutionary because it does involve an otherworldliness 
about religion. When we come back, we will move from Jesus to one of the great Roman emperors, Marcus Aurelius, in his meditations. Don't go anywhere. Our guest is Dr. Larry Arndt, president of Hillsdale College on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America, to the tunes of the Imperial March in Gladiator. A walk-on role in Gladiator to Marcus Aurelius, the subject of our continuing conversation now with Dr. Larry Arndt, president of Hillsdale College, played by Richard Harris in the movie. Did you see the movie, Dr. Arndt? Yes. Uh, what did you make of the depiction of Marcus Aurelius, who you put on your list, to my surprise, of people we had to talk about in our six-part special series? Uh, what did you make of Richard Harris's Marcus Aurelius? Oh, he was fine. Yeah, he was fun. Yeah, it was great. It was. Uh, um, I put I put Marcus Aurelius on here because of the meditations, because I love that book, and it's a short book, and you can buy it for about five bucks from the Penguin Classics, and it's fabulous reading. Marcus Aurelius is a an emperor after Caesarism has come over Rome. Uh, he is rightly depicted as a man who wishes some restoration of the Republic. He's also a ruthless war maker and ruler. And he's a scholar and a thinker and a philosopher. And he wrote this beautiful book. And the book is, is uh, it's, it's, it's a little hard to characterize, but I'm going to try. It's rather in the vein of Stoicism, influenced some by Christianity. Um, in Aristotle, happiness requires the practice of virtue and also good fortune. You have to have things go your way. If your kids are miserable, then you're going to be miserable. If, you're, if you don't have any money or you're put in prison, then that's too bad. You can't reach your full happiness. In Stoicism, the idea gets going that you can have your happiness independent of circumstances. Uh, there's the argument in Boethius's Confessions that you can be happy while you're inside a bronze bull, bull, with a fire raging underneath it, while you're cooking, in other words. Well, Marcus Aurelius's meditations are not quite like that, but they're, they're beautiful, and they're wonderful inward reflections. I'm going to give you an example from Meditation 3-12. If you do the task before you, always adhering to strict reason, with the zeal and energy, and yet with humanity, disregarding all lesser ends, and keeping the divinity within you pure and upright, as though you were even now faced with its recall. If you hold steadily to this, staying for nothing and shrinking from nothing, only seeking in each passing action a conformity with nature, and in each word an utterance of fearless truthfulness, then shall the good life be yours. From this course no man has the power to hold you back. Uh, that's before me because I like to read it about time of New Year's Day. <laughs> <laughs> Very well put, then. Marcus Aurelius, of course, an emperor about 180 A.D. he dies. I want to flash forward quickly because I want to spend this segment and next on Augustine. Uh, the first serious book I had taught to me was The Confessions, and uh, the the teacher was in love with the book. You probably want to talk about City of God. Let's do both. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm going to... Uh, Hugh, I know, Hugh Hewitt, I, I confess to all who are listening, is, a, is an old friend of mine, and I admire him. But uh, because of that fact, I know that he loves Augustine, and I'm going to invite him to talk some during all this, too, because he's pretty wise on this subject. I will say of Augustine that Augustine is one of the early church doctors. He's one of the important people who helped to work out something. And that was, what are we going to make of the thinking of the world before Jesus, after Jesus. How are we going to work that out? 
Uh, Augustine was a brilliant young man. He was born in North Africa. He was uh, um, he was uh, given to pleasure in ways that could be described as vice. That was a wonderful euphemism, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> when he was a young man. I'm a college president. I'm learning to use stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, um, he he was uh, he was a cad and a bounder, and uh, he got around. And he was also brilliant. He was a very intelligent man. And at a certain time in his life, after he was grown up, he converts to Christianity. And the next thing you know, he finds himself a priest, being a priest. Um, he, he was brought into the study of philosophy by Cicero. He read a treatise of Cicero's, and that really did um, sort of begin. It's interesting, you know, that one of these great Christian thinkers should be a student in the beginning, you know, indirectly by reading his books, of the of the most systematic of the introducers of the idea of the natural law. I guess you could give Cicero that title, maybe even a larger title. He may be the first person ever to use it as a as a good, uh, to use it not as a contradiction but as a as an entity that is united and present in all of us. Um, and so Cicero contribute some very important things to thought. Um, and partly it is the tradition of reason that is that is uh, present in the great pagan books and how it can apply in the world after Jesus. And his City of God and the Confessions too are both, in part, meditations on those questions. Um, he's involved, very much embroiled, in a great battle uh, that's going on within the church uh, called Manichaeanism. There are a series of battles that are like so the Arian heresy, and there's some things like that that come along where we kind of have to work out what do we, how do we understand of Jesus and his teaching. And Manichaeanism is a is a battle over whether there are two equal powers, good and evil, and it's our job to be on the side of good. You could get that from the Harry Potter books, I think. I, I know. Yes. Student, student of those books, but they may lend themselves to that interpretation. And and Augustine is is a very powerful advocate in that battle. And what he explains is, first of all, that's not the teaching of Jesus or of the Old Testament. But he also introduces this rational argument, which is very powerful. And and which argument is, it doesn't make any sense to claim that because how do you know if there are two equal powers, which one's the good one and which one's the evil one? Because you mean some deprecation when you use the term evil, and you mean some adulation when you mean the term good. So if they're equal, how do you know that one is to be adulated and one is to be deprecated? How do you know which is better? And, of course, there must be some standard outside the both of them by which you judge that. And whatever that standard is must be greater than they. When we come back, we're going to talk about that standard and about the implications for politics that... Augustine puts into City of God, and we'll talk a little bit more about confessions as well in the context of discussing with a college president uh, the appetites of young men and their disciplining. <laughs> Stay where you are. It's our walk through Western Civilization, part three, with my guest, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, on this, the special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, closing out part three of the special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show, originally taped December 31st, 2001, January 1st, 2002, with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. 
walking through Western civilization. We're concluding part three by talking about Augustine, the uh, the Bishop of Hippo and the author of, among other things, Confessions and City of God. I like this because uh, while I am not myself brilliant or a person of great appetites, nevertheless, Augustine uh, is a great book to give to people who are, uh, especially the part that says take and read, in that instance, the voice that he heard in the garden, which led to his conversion to Christianity. I wonder, do you often give confessions to your young men running around Hillsdale who are both brilliant and undisciplined? Um, I, 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 it's, I, I'll confess to you, I haven't. I, I do have a method about that, but uh, uh, once you say it, I see that it's a great idea. It is true, you know, by the way, with young men, like in every week a college president gets discipline reports. If you're at a college like this, like we impose visitation hours on the kids, and if we don't let them sleep over in the various dorms, and we don't have co-ed dorms here. So, of course, there's always friction about that. And we find them. And uh, more boys get fined than girls for all kinds of offenses. I call it sexist, but I can tell you it's an empirical fact. <laughs> um, what I do with the boys is uh, you can always find in a young man's life some pledge that they have taken. If they joined a fraternity, you know, for, we have fraternities here, and they misbehave terribly sometimes. But I'm working on that, and the way I'm working on that is to remind them what they promised when they joined the fraternity. If they're not in a fraternity, they're usually in some society. If they're not in some society, they're in this college. The college has a mission, and they all get told what it is when they get here. And so the way to deal with a young man is sort of like the way that Augustine got dealt with. And that is, explain to him, what his own account of himself is, and ask him if he thinks it's manly and honorable to behave the way he's behaving. They don't like that, by the way. I'll bet not. Because it's nuclear weapons, you know. And so the first thing that happens is you get back this philosophic argument, and this is just exactly what Augustine did, you know, because he was, of course, in a way, thank God I don't have him around here because I'd never beat him in an argument, older though he was at this time, I am now than he was at the time when he found his conversion. Um... They come back, it was an argument, yeah, but it has to be just your own will. And, of course, you can't sustain that for a minute. But you're, you're right about Augustine. Augustine was an ambitious, fun-loving, vicious in some ways. I mean, that means having vices, young man of real intellect and ability. And what really happened to him was that he found a better way to go to war. He was one of the church doctors who gave an account of nearly everything by the time Confessions and Cities of God is over and also On Free Will and other of his works. Um, but he did Ten it... Ten seconds, Dr. Arn. Hmm? Ten seconds. Ten seconds. You should talk about Augustine. And uh, I will only say that people ought to read him for both the account of his conversion and the understanding that Take and Read is the most important thing written in Western civilization. We'll be back with part four tomorrow on this The Hugh Hewitt Show. <laughs> 